I completely blanked out. Hold on. <coughs> Man, I was holding that in. Welcome to another special edition of the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, where I, Mark, am going down my top 50 games of all time. This is an exciting one. We're almost there. Today we're going to go down my 20th through 11th favorite games of all time. Before we start on the list, though, with me today is Orion. Hey, what's up? Matt. Hi, Mark. And special guest Ben. Hey. And my lovely wife, Amber. Hi, everyone. Who's also a special guest. Yes, very special. (laughs) Before we start on the list, though, I want to do some honorable or maybe we should call them dishonorable mentions. When I was creating this list, I actually did the list out to number 70 before cutting it down to the top 50. But here are some games that are popular and well-known that are outside of even my top 70. Just going to run through them real quick. We have Quantum, Firefly the Board Game, Pandemic, Jaipur, Sheriff of Nottingham, Betrayal at House on the Hill, Balderdash, Catan, Bang, and Machi Koro. So, <laughs> doesn't mean I dislike these games. In fact, some like Quantum I actually enjoy. They just fell out of that top 70. Some of them, like Bang, I do not enjoy. And that's why they're outside of it's the a, top it's 70. It's a pretty random little list, but I'm... I will personally well, say that I'm glad that Sheriff of Nottingham is in that list. <laughs> but it's Balderdash fun. is awesome. Balderdash was really close, actually. That's a fun game, especially the new versions they have where they have the different categories. I tend to crush, like, the first round of that game and then never get another word. word. <laughs> yeah. So, Mark, I noticed that you didn't list Bananagrams. Does that mean that Bananagrams is in the Oh, top it's in the top five? Oh, right. <laughs> I, I do not want to give that even the respect of a mention. It's awesome. Bananagrams is just horrible Scrabble. Awesome Scrabble. Bananagrams Mark just doesn't Mark. have a fast enough brain for Bananagrams. Oh, yes. Yes. It's true. I'm not good at fast. Well, I'm good at some fast games. Dutch Blitz? In that... Spoons? Speed? No, you fail. No, no. I'm good at, I'm good at set, though. Remember set? I don't even remember. It's the one where you have the grid of, like, the shapes, the different shapes with different... We played it once at the Marquinis. It's really fun, actually. And I I would like to get a copy of it, because it's a... You're trying to... It's a a pattern. It's a pattern recognition game. All I remember is that you fail at speed. Yes, yeah. I'm horrible at speed. I don't remember how to play that. Isn't that like war, but you smack each other? No. No. What? That's Egyptian (laughs) war. Okay. Egyptian War is awesome, and I, I don't remember win. Egyptian Rat Screw. Yes. Yeah, Amber's very good at these games, and I am not. But anyway, those are some <laughs> popular games that are not even on my top seventy. Nevertheless, my top fifty. On the next installment, I'll go over some popular games that barely missed the list. But without any further ado, number twenty. This might be a shocker for you guys. Dun, dun, dun. Pandemic Legacy. Really? Ah, all, right. all right. I crossed right. that off of my wow. list when I was making the top 10, so I'm still good. Oh, did anyone else put that on their top 10 guesses? I put that on my one of my guesses. Oh. I did not because this is about where I expected you to put it. Okay. For me, I mean, this was my first Legacy game experience, and as far as a gaming experience, it's one of the best I've ever had, but it's 
hard for me to judge it because it's it's over. It's a different thing. Yeah, yeah. it's over. Yeah. That that is the downside is that we can't ever go back and play yeah. that the same way we did the first time. Right. I would put it in if I were to put it in a top ten, it'd be based on that board gaming experience where it's it's incredible. But as a board game, uh, I would agree that Pandemic is not as good as many of these other games you've mentioned, and it's fancy Pandemic for that. Yeah, I mean, part of it is that I, I'm not as big on Pandemic as many people. I, as I talked about last time, I like, for a Matt Leacock cooperative game, I like Forbidden Desert significantly better. And I'm not going to go in, into any spoilers here, but if you're, sens- if you're very sensitive about spoilers, maybe wait a couple minutes. But I found that... There are a couple criticisms that I have with Pandemic Legacy because it, it was such a fun experience. We wanted to keep playing it over and over again to finish. And the overall experience of the campaign was great, but it, it's still Pandemic, which I think is pretty good, but not great. Although further iterations like in the middle of the game were actually more fun than regular Pandemic, I think. But that would be my one criticism is that it still has kind of the overcalculation of Pandemic compared to something like Forbidden Desert, where you can do risk mitigation but not calculate the odds as specifically. And the other thing is that it tended to not... It tended to throw new things at you before you even had any... You could have any expectation of mitigating or countering them. So you might get it open up a new box and some new development would happen... And it would screw you over and you'd be like, well, there was nothing. There's no way we could have predicted that or done anything about it. So in some areas, I felt like the game was kind of playing us and things were just happening. And there was nothing we could have done to prevent that or mitigate that. Yeah, there's one in particular that that I'm thinking of. Not in a significant way, but I think just a couple occasions that kind of frustrated me a little bit. I think that's part of the theme, though, is that fighting this infectious disease, you don't know what's going to happen next, and it can surprise you at times and take you off guard. Sure. I think there was just a little bit too much of that, that it got a little bit frustrating, particularly when we're fighting so hard and making so many strategic decisions for things to just get thrown at us. And maybe that's inherent in the legacy aspect, but I think there are ways you could have gone around it. And from a pure, maybe it's part of the theme, but from a gameplay perspective, having things come out of nowhere and attack you basically without any way of preventing it is, is yeah. subpar game design. If, if even it, though it does contribute to this to the theme and the experience. If it were a regular game, a lot of those moments that, that, that you're describing would have been huge downsides to the game. And it and this is where it's hard to judge a legacy game in the same way we're judging board games. But I think a lot of those same moments added great balance to a legacy experience where this game works. I think this game would work with groups of different skill levels, groups of different familiarities with Pandemic and, and, and so on and so forth. Well, it still has quarterbacking problems like Pandemic does. It does have that. Yeah. It, or, but, it, or rather, it doesn't do anything but to mitigate But it will be fun. It, if you are four Pandemic stars... You're still going to have fun playing Legacy. If you're four people who have never played a co-op game and you're just learning the rules as you go, I think you're still going to have fun. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt it's it's an incredibly fun game. And I love the Legacy concept. I love having permanence in the game. And I cannot wait to see what's going to be in the future for Legacy games because of this. Like, I'm, I'm emphasizing the downsides because so many people 
and the board game community at large has rated this the greatest game ever made, and I have it at 20th. I still think it's spectacular, but not without its faults. How excited are you for Season 2? I'm more excited because I saw a sneak preview of the board, and it got me really interested in what on earth they're going to be doing here. Wait. Okay. No, I, 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 I won't say anything. I, I won't say anything. Yeah, and another thing, like this game monopolized our game nights and increased their frequency until we had played all the way through it. Except for that last month, it took us like a month and a half of real time for you to ever come over so we could finish the game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's making me really excited for Gloomhaven when I get that in the late fall because that has a bit of legacy aspect to it, and Charterstone, the new game coming out from Stonemire, which is going to be a legacy game. Where at the end of the game, instead of just being done with it, you have a full-fledged game. Um, just one unique to your group. Um, and then whatever else they're coming down the pipeline with in terms of legacy. Like I think the concept of it and how they're going to iterate on this concept is great. And for that, Pandemic Legacy should really be praised. Because it really, it wasn't the first legacy game, but it was certainly the most popular one. Moving on to number 19, the first, I believe the first... Of many games from our, I think our collective and certainly my favorite game designer, Vlada Kavadal. Vlada! The legend. Vlada. And that is number 19, Galaxy Trucker. Yay! Oh. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> wow. A, this is a surprise. Really? Oh, I mean... I love Galaxy Trucker. I love this game. It is the I, best. I wouldn't have thought you'd put it this high, but I guess we've seen from 50 to... 20 now so it has to be higher yeah i am actually very surprised by its presence in the top 20 i want to play i mean it's such a great like shortish like 45 minutes to an hour game it's bananas it's absolutely nuts i'll say this when a group of friends that when not this group but when other groups of friends wants to play a game i always mention it as an option oh yeah for some reason no one ever wants to play with me but it's just one of those (laughs) games that you're like this is just so much fun yeah, and how the game works is that it's half in real time where you are constructing a spaceship or space truck, I guess, <laughs> out of spare parts frantically. Literally from a junkyard. From a junkyard. <laughs> it's a speed puzzle game. Yeah, in a mad rush to finish this before people force the timer on you and, and run out of time. And then you truck across the galaxy and get hit by asteroids and get raided by space pirates, and you watch as your ship disintegrates as things pummel it in the empty vacuum of space, and you barely trudge along into the finish line with a couple of goods and a half a spaceship. Speak for yourself, Mark. It always disintegrates. Always. Not now. The problem, the, the main problem right now with it is that I think we're all too good at it now, and we lose that aspect, which means Giesman, since you own this game, Gotta hit up some expansions for us and make this game harder. <laughs> this game, the first time you play it, you will just get destroyed. And when you're introducing new people to this game, you need to figure out how to couch that because if you don't warn them, I think it could lead to a really bad experience for what's a really fun game. For us, we all played it the first time all together, so we all got destroyed together and had a blast. And then from then on, when we introduced new people, we at least knew what sorts of things could happen and prepare against them, whereas the new person just has to go through it and get destroyed once. Yeah, my sister hated this game (laughs) so much, but 
It's fun even when you get destroyed. It's just a hilarious game. Like, the whole premise is silly. <laughs> yeah. The components are silly. I, I the rule book is silly. Just the way... So, so as, in the second phase of the game, when you're trucking through space, and someone draws a card that says an asteroid hits, you roll a die to see which sort of column it affects on your player boards. And then you go around around to each player, and everyone draws... The asteroid coming in, and oh, that part isn't protected. Oh no, I just lost a part. That means ten other parts fell off. <laughs> yeah, so you imagine constructing the spaceship kind of on a grid with an outline, a spaceshipy outline, and then you're just constructing it out of like pipes and connective mechanisms, and it just it just looks like it was assembled together out of junk. And, and then it acts like that, usually. Um, <laughs> a lot of people think it's too random, but I think that's the fun of it. Like, I will beat a new player. It's not that random. Um, it does take some skill in knowing knowing the game. But even if you do just get horribly unlucky, it's hilarious. It's so funny, and you just mock people and have a grand time. And I think there are a lot of good mechanics, too. Like, there's, there's kind of a... Like, similar to Power Grid, there's... The um, idea that if if you kind of hang towards the back, the people in front might take all of the as- asteroids, well, and then you can jump to the front towards the end. I, I think there's some some good mechanics that are interesting well, I, there. I call this the hubristic <laughs> catch-up mechanism system because if you were the first to finish your spaceship and you know lock it in and complete it. You can grab your starting position. So you can decide to go first if you're super confident in your spaceship and you just want to get bludgeoned by everything and think you can take it. Or you can kind of go toward the back. And then as people finish their spaceships, they just grab the positions that are next. So it's not like you're locked in. You choose where you are in the turn order. And the farther up front in the line you are, the more things will hit you. <laughs> and the, the more potential... Profit you'll make, but oh, yeah. the if if you you have to have a really sharp uh, build to go first. Exactly. So it's how confident it's based on how confident you are in your construction. But you always want to try to grab first, just so you can re, you know grab all those goods. But if you are too overconfident, you will be wrecked. One <laughs> one of my favorite things in in Galaxy Trucker is the way that the building rounds uh, are ended. They have this like sand timer mechanism that you flip over whenever anyone wants. It's kind of similar to the, the timer in code names. Um, Another which is also a lot of game in that there's not really any prescribed point where you have to flip the timer over. It's just whenever someone wants, they can flip the timer over. And I, I think that's a brilliant, a, a brilliant thing to do in a game is just to let the players decide when they want to do something. Yeah, so and you it's can either really have fun if you're trying to like speed through and rush everyone out. You flip the the sand timer and everyone looks at you. Is like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I am not done yet. And then everyone has a half finished. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's great because depending on who you're playing with, you can either have like a very relaxed and very you know well thought out set of ships, or you can have these. These terrible ships that are just going to get obliterated as you go through these these uh, these asteroid fields and get attacked by space pirates and everything. It's 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 a great mechanism, and oh, I think it does so great. much for the game. Oh, such a great game! Moving on down to number eighteen, we have a double Vlada section of the list. I was trying to make an alliteration there, but I failed. 
Number 18, code names. Code names. Ooh, I'm glad that I forgot to put this on my top 10 list now. <laughs> the best party game that I've ever played. Agreed. It's it's so good. It's if you haven't played it yet, which would be almost surprising because it's I believe the most popular game of the last 2 years. Isn't it the also modern... the most best or the highest best-selling game ever or something like it's that? It's like $12 on Amazon. Well, no, it, it doesn't have as many sales as like Monopoly, but it's of modern games. Yeah, I yeah. think it's been the number one selling game of the last two years. Okay, deservedly so. Yes, this is a game. It's a it's a word association game where you have a grid of five a five by five grid of random words, and two people are the spy masters, and they're going to be leading the rest of the players on separated it into teams into trying to guess words that belong to them. By giving one word clues followed by a number. So if you have, if there are two different animals that are your words out there, you could say animals two, and then that would lead them to selecting those two animals or guessing those. But it's not as clear cut and as easy as that because oftentimes you'll have very tenuous relationships between the words you're trying to get them to guess. And most significantly, there's one word out of the 25 that is the assassin. And if at any point your team guesses that word, the other team wins immediately. And it creates this really fun, tense game. There's a, For a party game, there's a lot of sitting there in silence trying to think. But it makes up for that by having really exciting moments of surprise and shock and shouting at each other. And, the, and the, this game might have the best post-game debriefing of, of any game. Oh, yeah. Right. It's like, yeah. what were you thinking? That was the dumbest clue I've ever heard. Or <laughs> all kinds of... There's almost as fun to talk about the game after you played it as it is playing the game. Yeah. I recently... I gave this to my mom for Christmas last year, and she finally learned it w- when I taught her and fell in love with it. And I got a text from her just a couple of days ago where she said, I taught code names to 10 of my friends last night. Eight of them are going to buy it. <laughs> it's it's just, I think, almost universally loved. Yeah. It's so fun. I, I've taken this game and taught it to the widest variety of types of groups of any game I've, I've ever had. And it's worked in every single group. Like, family on one side that's silly... More serious family, serious friends, you know, like coworkers. I think the brilliance of this game is how well it makes whoever's playing it shine and just brings out these awesome moments of that really kind of put individuals' creativity on display. Yeah. 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 If you don't like regular code names, they now have code names pictures. If you go to a Target, they have an adult themed code name. It's called Code Names after dark i think okay that's just weird there's a disney one coming out i think and a marvel one (laughs) they have all these kinds of licenses which i'm fine with because it's just bringing cash into cge check games edition and they make amazing games and so this i think this is just going to be a cash cow for them to fund even more vlada games and all these like great heavy euros they do so I think it's fantastic that it's caught yeah, it's on weird. as well as it is, even if it's going to start being really derivative very quickly. I, I'm honestly surprised it's this slow on your list, and and this is easily a top five game for me. Yeah, it's I know the, you it's love that it. good. 
I mean, I enjoy it, and it's going to work great in any situation. It's just not as fun as heavier games for me. Like, the thing is, I like these bigger, like more a, involved games. It's a 20-minute experience. Yeah, I like these bigger, more involved games. And so when I think to myself, okay, which game is more fun to me? The lighter games are going to have an inherent disadvantage just because of my preferences. Yeah. Even though I think it's a brilliant game. I will say, I played this with my girlfriend once. Just the two. There's there's a way to do it as a two person. Oh, actually, game. I forgot to mention and that's the next release. They're doing a two player Codenames. Okay. It's called well, Codenames Duets. I think that's the next one going to be out. Wow. That cool. But even with Codenames, there's there is a set of rules. Basically, you're you're just challenging yourself to to win with the fewest number of clues, and it was really fun. Um, just as like a couples thing. Mm-hmm. Mark and I would. Fail. Yeah, Amber and I, our minds don't synchronize very well on many games. It is hilarious to see whose minds sync w- w- yeah. with each other. I'm also Sometimes very it... bad at code names. <laughs> <laughs> I'm awful. I rarely win. But I think, hands down, the best party game I've ever played. Yeah. Moving on, number 17, Battlestar Galactica. Uh, from Fantasy Flight. It, this used to be a lot higher on my list, but I think the last couple times we played it, it was kind of a dud. It's gotten... We, we have all the expansions, and I think it's gotten a little bit unwieldy with the way we're playing with the expansions, where we're it's just taking too long for us. And I think it's a game that can... If you don't kind of enforce going quickly on it, it, it can drag on a bit. But it's a great semi-cooperative game based on the television show Battle Battlestar Galactica. And basically, everyone's in the Battlestar Galactica. It's a spaceship, and you're trying to uh, jump or warp, I guess, um, a certain number of times to get to a destination before your food runs out or your fuel runs out or morale gets too low. Or or, just everybody dies. Or everyone dies. And so you have all these threats. And the turn structure is very simple. You can move once. You can take a single action. And then a crisis happens, and the crises are the real meat of the game. It has a brilliant mechanism for resolving the crises because everyone's working together, but it's a crisis, so you're you can't work together perfectly. So everyone in turn throws down face down some skill cards of different types of skills, and each crisis requires certain skill types to resolve that crisis. And so once everyone has thrown all the cards face down, you add two random cards, you reveal them. And every card that is for the correct skill type adds to adds to the number. And all the cards of different colors take away from that. And if you reach a certain threshold, you pass. If not, you fail. And sometimes the fail resolutions are very mean and very severe. Um, and usually if you pass a crisis, nothing ha- good, nothing bad happens, but also nothing good happens. And just that kind of blind play almost simultaneous play aspect to the game is, I think, a really good uh, way of resolving it. It also is a semi-co-op game in that there are traitors, but you don't know exactly when the traitors will emerge. So everyone, there's like two rounds to giving out your loyalty cards. Most of the players are going to be loyal to the humans, but then there are going to be a couple of Cylons. But because it's split out into two rounds, it's entirely possible that for the first half of the game, everyone is on the same side and everyone's a human. And then two of them will be sleeper agents that convert over to Cylons halfway through. That combined with just 
how thematic it is and how cool all the crises are and all the events uh, just make it a great experience that unfortunately has just bogged been bogged down a bit too much recently for for it to be for it to like hit my top 10 because at one point it was on my top 10 yeah the greatest strength of this game is the theme i'm a huge fan of the show and i was a huge fan of the game because of how much it felt like you were in the show like you were reliving it um i would say maybe the first 10 times i played this game i thought it was absolutely fantastic maybe it's getting a little bit old now since we are familiar with so many of the characters the cards the actions we kind of know what's coming up but still very worthwhile to buy for the first 10 or so plays yeah still a great experience although i would recommend getting either the pegasus or the daybreak expansion because there's a mechanism the game works best at five players and there's a mechanism in the base game if you don't have exactly five players, that's just dumb. And either one of those expansions will fix that, no problem. Going along with the player count, it's definitely better at certain player counts. And under the some scenarios, I think in the Daybreak expansion, it adds sideline leaders, which I would not recommend. I've played it a couple times. And it just ends up with this one lone wolf, lone wolf person who is doing their own thing. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't work as well. Yeah, the expansions can be a bit hit and miss. I do, there are good aspects to each of the three expansions. Um, sometimes very good aspects, like the, I think the Mutineer aspect and the Daybreak expansion is great. Yep. But there's a couple of duds in each of them. But still, even, even if you're just playing the base game, it's such a fantastic experience. It's hard for me not to compare this game to The Resistance, because, I mean, the meat of the game is kind of, figuring out who the Cylons are and at least doing so soon enough so that you can have a better chance of uh, not failing in in reaching your final destination. Mm -hmm. And in that comparison, uh, I mean, some of the obvious things are this game is just way less elegant. Oh, yeah. Well, it adds resistance is only that. This has an entire game around it. And, uh, well, and I think my feeling is that the game itself is only fun because of the traitor aspect like it, it's not it wouldn't be a challenge if you knew that everyone was oh, working sure. together it's not as tight of a puzzle yeah but it has it's it's not a it's not so much a co-op game in which you're playing against <laughs> the game as you're playing against everyone else and their suspicions that's yes. why the, and that's and that part is that part is really good. That's why the skill check thing works so well because yes. you're all you could all be on the same side, but because you have to play face down, you don't know for sure, and you often end up wasting way too many cards on a skill check just because you're not sure about everyone else. So at least so for this gaming group, I think BSG sort of replaced the resistance as our trader game of choice for a while there. And I think for for good reason, because the, the mechanics do work really well, especially the crisis resolution thing. That's just great. And, and you don't know if the Cylon put in the card that's going to detract rather than add towards the goal. And uh, yeah, yeah. And furthermore, having never seen the TV show, I still feel like the theme is riveting. Yeah, I don't it's think a- any of us had seen the TV show before we played the game. Oh, you you had seen it, Amber? Yeah, I'm a huge fan. 
I didn't know that. I thought we were watching it together for the very first time after we played the game. No, Mark. I was introducing you to the show. Oh. Well, anyway, the game inspired me to watch the television show, at least the first couple of seasons. We never finished it. And uh, it's still engaging, even if you don't know anything about the show. You just need to know that there are Cylons, and Cylons are traitors. That's it. I, I will say that one of my favorite parts about this game is how unique all of the characters are. The way that they pull characters from the TV show and give them abilities and uh, also disabilities um, that coincide with their characters is, is brilliant. Like Starbuck in the TV series is this this ace pilot who has a big a big problem with authority, and they reflect that in her player card and that she's by far the best pilot that you can have, but she's also really easy to throw in the brig. Yeah, and with the characters, there there are just a bunch of different aspects of the game: political, military, that just have cool character-driven uh, mechanics. Yeah, yeah, like, it's a great one. Th- this this game, I would say, is still in my top ten. It it, it hasn't grown stale for me. Maybe that's because I played it less than you guys have, but it, it's I, I love this game. Yeah, it's fantastic. Moving on to a newer game we got that is also deeply thematic. We first played at PAX East, and that is Robinson Crusoe ah. from Portal Games. That was fun. Which is a co-op game. I guess it's not. I guess Forbidden Desert wasn't my favorite pure co-op because this is a pure co-op. But it's about kind of the Robinson Crusoe situation where you're stranded on a desert island. There are a number of different scenarios that you can play around with that, that require you to do different things, and the core of the game is this kind of push your luck aspect because for most of the actions if you want to say gather some resources on the island you can send one of your workers or you can send two of your workers to do that safely and just gather the resources or you can send one of your workers and then roll some dice the dice will determine whether or not you succeed at that action whether or not you take a wound while doing it and most interestingly whether or not you draw one of the cards associated with that type of action The cards will typically maybe give you a choice or maybe something will just happen to you. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but then you slide it into or shuffle it into this deck that's kind of the timer for the game. And whenever that card returns, something bad is going to happen to you unless you prevent it. So, for instance, in our first game, I think it was Orion ate some berries, or was it me who it was ate you. some berries? Was it you, me? You ate the berries. I ate the berries. I went out foraging, and I found some berries, and I ate them. And then, you know, an hour later in the game, this card pops back up, and I got a stomach ache, and I started puking everywhere. And it's it's really fun, thematic things like that. Like one time, someone... a, a lot of them tend to, the first time you hit it, it's something good. Like you find this cave and you get some food, but then a bear attacks you later or something. Yeah, yeah, and really interesting consequences that make sense. Like if if you take the option of exploring the cave, you get something good, but but you have to pay. You for provoke it later. the bear. Yeah. yeah, and so it's full of all these kinds of consequences for your actions in a really satisfying way. In addition, the exploring's fun. You can build up your shelter. You can build palisades to prevent against wild animal attacks. Uh, when you discover like animal tracks, you can then go out and h- try to hunt them with your weapons, which you have to keep maintained. And it's a really tight cooperative puzzle, but one that is executed in a very thematically rich way that I think is just 
beautiful. Like I think it's it's such a good system. And fortunately, they're releasing another game very soon called First Martians. That's the same system, but set on Mars as kind of like you're like the first explorers on Mars and you're trying to survive. And it looks to be really cool and I can't wait to get that one too. Are there Martians? Uh, I think they confirmed that it's all hard sci-fi. Oh, uh, okay. So there's not going to be aliens. <laughs> That's really cool. I, I'm looking forward to that yeah. aspect. But yeah, so Robinson Crusoe, it feels like the heaviest co-op that I've played, I think. Like, it feels like a a, a Euro. Well, yeah, it's very much, it's literally a Euro. They're a Polish game design studio. Okay, yeah. And I mean, and it's worker placement. I don't know. It, it, I mean, it's heavier than Forbidden Desert. That's for sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's it's certainly it's not incredibly difficult to understand. Although, if you do get the first edition of the game, the rule book is the worst rule book I've ever seen. The second edition has a substantially better rule book. When we played at PAX, I found a quick learn to play guide online, which helped clarify a lot of things and streamline our understanding of it. So, if you do get the first edition, look for some resources online. But you should be able to find the second edition very, very easily. But it's not that difficult to learn. It's just you have to very be very careful about optimizing your actions. And it's it's a co-op game that I think reduces quarterbacking just because there are many things to do each turn that are good. And you have to discuss to try to optimize. Yeah. And, and there's unknown risk in some of the actions that you can't necessarily predict for. Yeah, it, there's a lot of trying to... There's a lot of seeing how far you can push your luck and how many risks you can take um, and weighing that against the possible consequences. And I think I think that might be a theme of my list of games that I like a lot is games where you do have that kind of risk mitigation and not games... Not necessarily so many games where you have a lot of... Where you have like perfect information or near-perfect information but games rather that use their themes to make you take risks or make you do calculations on probability or see how bold you want to be. And I think this game exemplifies that perfectly. The one thing we'd note is we've played the first two scenarios and won both of them pretty handily. So we'll have to see how the later ones shake out. Yeah, I keep hearing it's like brutally difficult for a co-op and we haven't had any trouble yet. So... I'm still waiting to see where the brutally difficult scenarios yeah, and, are. And there's no kind of mechanism for regulating that. Oh, I guess there is. I mean, there's you, some you, stuff in the rule. You book. can add the what? Oh, what's the guy? Friday is is the kind of helper, the helper guy, yeah. which basically gives you an extra action pun. So there are some ways of regulating the difficulty, but yeah. and those those are the two easiest scenarios. Um, but they weren't that challenging. There was a, a really fun moment at the end of the first game where all of those consequence cards that we talked about came back and all hit Mark and he ended at up... exactly the same time. <laughs> all in one turn and he was one health away from dying. So I suppose in that sense we almost lost. But we had been controlling the game for three rounds and just happened to draw all of those cards at once. Yeah, so it has really exciting moments like that. And I, I want to play more and more. And yeah, I want to get know, through all these scenarios. You know... We've played an, a, a, we've played a lot of games, and and I think this game surprised me with its cool mechanics more than any game that I've you know played for the first time in the well, last few months. 
just because it, yeah like the action deck uh is, is just great how how when you shuffle the cards in they come back to bite you at a later time like that's just so brilliant the die that you roll when you do a, a build action or a an explore action or something like that that do different things independently it, it's brilliant the, the it's just it has great mechanics yeah, throughout the game, if you're just analyzing the mechanisms of the game, you just keep thinking to yourself, well, yes, obviously that was the right thing to do from a design standpoint. Like, it seems all so obvious now that we've played the game, but it's the first game that has put it together like this, where you have consequences for your actions. And the way they do it's just such an elegant, simple, obvious way of doing it. So... We've only played a few times, but for potential replayability, there there are a lot of things going in its favor. A bunch of scenarios, nine, I think. Yeah, um, I think they might have official ones you can download as well. And so there's a there is a central platter of tools available that you can research or build technologies. Yeah, those, are, those are randomized. And so yeah, they're the standard ones, but then about half of them are are random. Uh, and then all the cards in the game. There's so many cards. Every single one is thematic, but you're you're only going to see like a tenth of them in a given playthrough. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of replayability there, and you need to come over more and bring it since you own this game, so we can play it more. I've been like I've been hoarding it because I want Amber to play it more, but yeah, her board game playing time is limited. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, let's move down to the next game on my list. Another new game that we actually played yesterday or last night. That is just. Another just brilliantly designed game, and that is Food Chain Magnates, which I think we all loved on the first time we played it. It's a game about being a food chain magnate in a small town. It's a very deep Euro game that's surprisingly simple to learn. Like, it's not that difficult, but man, is it deep. And does it require a lot of planning ahead and kind of very complex thought structures and I love it. I love that aspect of it. And it requires all of that, but you can still have such great fun if you just play it thematically and choose how to run your restaurant and how to run your fast fast food chain and do it the way you want to do. Even if you fail, you have a great time. And it's really funny the situations it creates where you plaster a billboard right outside a house to make them want <laughs> your burgers or Cokes or whatever. And it just, it can stay there for potentially the entire game and that house will forever want that food item. It almost makes fun of advertising in the real world, which is just fantastic. Oh yeah, I wrote a review on this on thethoughtfulgamer.com and I go through all the different scenarios in there why this game is absolutely hilarious. Um, So there's a, if, if you're interested, read the review. I think the simplicity of it and the depth combined just make it a great feat of design. And it's just tremendously fun. The The coolest aspect of the game, and it's never one of those obvious design decisions that I'm surprised I've never seen before. There may yeah. be some game out there that has it, but I haven't seen it, where you're literally just building a corporate management tree with cards. So you start with, with you, who's the CEO, and you can manage three people, and you hire new people, and you can hire more managers, you can hire chefs, you can hire advertisers, hire recruiting people and they just create this literal tree in front of you as you expand your business 
it's just a fantastic idea and it's executed perfectly in food chain magnate earlier you guys made it out to sound like it's just like a walk in a park fun game by a lot of measures this game is brutal oh it's mean so yeah yeah don't be fooled like if if you suck at organizing your management tree and you know you don't have the right you, you don't try to corner a certain part of the market and you get left. You can get left out and just sell nothing, and you're basically okay, out of so business. Okay, so let's be clear. I <laughs> was left out, and I sold almost nothing. But I had a blast because the management tree that I set up was clearly such poor management. <laughs> but I laughed because it was real world yeah, management. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The game is incredibly unforgiving. Not only in that there aren't any catch-up mechanisms, but also because your first few actions set the tone for the entire game. And if you mangle a couple of those first five or six turns, you are probably going to lose. But you still might have fun because it's hilarious. Amber wants you to play this game. (laughs) I lost miserably, you guys, and I still had a blast. This happened to me last night when we played. I just mismanaged my first couple turns and spent the rest of the game catching up. And I managed to do all right, but Mark still had two and a half times the amount of money as me at the end. Yeah, I, I will say, too, I, I didn't mess my opening up, but I, I really did very poorly in the mid-game. I was always a turn behind in Mark. Uh, you lowered your prices significantly in one of the last turns. And I, I, I oh, sold I nothing. <laughs> I sold nothing that entire turn, and I had so much food. It is really important in this game to keep your pulse on the market and to make sure that you know what other people are doing. Because if, if I had seen both you and Bubba buying the uh, the discount manager, I I probably would have at least considered getting one of my own. It, it's it's brutal, but it is so much fun. It's such a good lesson in market mechanisms. And at the same yeah. time, it's just so much fun because it mimics the real world. And you can laugh at, at yourself and you can laugh at the world along with It you. mimics the real world, but then you also have Zeppelins collecting drinks. Yes. Wait, that doesn't mimic the real world? <laughs> yes. But no, no, you're right. It It is very cool. You feel like you are actually a handful of food chain magnets in this small little town and it has cute little roads and you have cute little management trees and billboards right outside your window <laughs> yes <laughs> it should be made clear that billboards in this game only work when they're directly outside of a house <laughs> like plastered on the window basically but i i love the game and i i it's going to be a staple in, our, in the collection yeah. for i think a long time I think this is a game where after you play it a bunch, you could end up with kind of set openings of, oh, I'm going to go for the boom strat or I'm going to go for the early train strat. And that might... It might make the game dull, but it could also make a really interesting metagame. Right. So in, in the way that chess is very predictable and you know there are these openings, now in chess there are hundreds of openings, but if you just look at the top you know, half dozen or so... You know, there are the Roy Lopez or the King's Gambit or the Queen's Gambit and things like that that are these known openings that both people are thinking about ahead of time. And yet it's still a, a very deep game. Not to say this is a three millennium old game that will <laughs> persist throughout time and culture, but I could see how it, with those 
even given those kind of set opening strategies, still allows the possibility of different competitions and interesting choices down the line. Yeah, and I think because the way that the game is with the the different map setups, that there there will be different flavors for this game every time you play it. I don't think it will become yeah, one of those stale games. But speaking of games that we need to play more often and now can't because the owner of the game has left our apartment to a different state. One of the best games of all time, a classic, Agricola. No. Ah! No. <laughs> this game is very divisive among us. It's a good game. I'm pretty bad at it. And it is, boy, this is a harsh game to try to navigate. Yeah, but... speaking of unforgiving. Yeah. Whew. I need to try this game again. It's It's been a couple years for me. Yeah. And at some point I just decided this game isn't fun. I'm just getting wrecked, but I I, I want to give it another try. <laughs> it's so good. It's the Uwe Rosenberg classic when he switched from making games about counting beans, literally, to his kind of trademark heavy Euro worker placement style where you have to feed your people. And that's really the reason why Agricola is so harsh is because you have to feed your family at the end of each round or each segment of the game. And food is incredibly hard to come by. It simulates the 14th century agrarian, not agrarian, sustenance sustenance farming society. So you're planting farms and maybe you'll get a pig and maybe you'll actually get some vegetable seeds. And then, oh no, you have to feed your family. Better go fishing for a couple of fish so you don't starve and have to go begging. But somehow, well, there there are a couple of things it does that are just brilliant. The first thing is that you have a standard setup for the number of players you have that give you basic actions. And then each round of the game, it unlocks a brand new action. And there's some predictability to what actions will be unlocked, but somewhat random as well. So you can plan ahead a little bit, but it also expands the game broadly and makes it more complicated as you play. So it's a much simpler game at the start, but as you expand and your farm expands, the options available to you expand as well, which I think is just fascinating and brilliant. It also has these cards that will give you uh, occupations or minor improvements you can make to your farm. And the best way to play the game is to basically draft these cards at the beginning, So you and they kind of set the strategy for you. But they don't give you massive advantages, they give you very marginal advantages, and you're never going to do a move in Agricola that gives you a massive swing. They just give you very small marginal benefits. And at the end of the game, you've made a farm, right? The, it's just whole, very slow and very tedious to get there. The whole game is about doing just enough to survive and a little bit extra. And that's all you can do because you only have a, a few workers and the action spaces are so contested, especially in larger number, not larger player count games that you it's it's really difficult to manage what actions you get to take and doing enough to be able to feed your family and do something to move towards improving your farm. Yeah, like Mark and Oren just described, this game is about subsistence farming, and that's just not fun. <laughs> it's so fun. Like, I, like, I had won this game, and I did not have fun. Right, this is one of those games that you have... One of those games where you have a bunch of actions available to you, and none of them feel right. <laughs> none you of never them, feel good none about of them it. feel like 
you're making enough progress to be worth it. You're always feeling like your family's going to starve. <laughs> oh, exactly. And that's yeah. why I love it. Yeah. And yes, and, and that is what makes it good. But, you know, it's also very brutal if, like, if you don't like that. <laughs> I might be able to agree that this game is objectively good thematically, but I don't enjoy it. Well, I do, and that's why it's number 14 on my list. Anyway, moving on, number 13, finally, after Rebellion at 41, I believe, or 40, we have War of the Ring at number 13. We debated this extensively on a couple podcasts ago, but I think War of the Ring is just a perfect thematic experience that beautifully displays the story of Lord of the Rings in board game form, and it- I love it. This is a wonderful game. I think this is almost exactly right to where I'd put this, kind of in the mid-teens or so. Uh, I love this game. As Mark said, the theme is excellent, how you you feel like you're replaying the Lord of the Rings and you're moving these armies around, and as the free people, you're desperately hoping Frodo makes it to Mount Doom before all of Middle-earth is covered by the shadow armies. Uh, It's it's a blast. Yeah, and just a couple of highlights. You have It's a two-player asymmetric game. One side is playing... The Shadow Armies, so Sauron and Saruman and the Easterlings. The other side is playing the Free Peoples. But there's this dual game going on where the Free Peoples, the Fellowship is trying to advance the ring and get it to Mount Doom. And that's one aspect of the game. And the Shadow player is trying to corrupt them. But then you have the entire military aspect of the game, which has its own win condition for each side as well. So you have to balance these two aspects of the journey And just the way the game is set up, it incentivizes and pushes toward a very similar narrative to the original, to the Lord of the Rings, but in a very exciting way. And it's, it's almost a nostalgic experience for me when I play it. It's, it's that good. Yeah. And all the cards you play are really, as you said, nostalgic and thematic to things that happened and it feels so great to play the Ents and attack, or thank and crush Saruman, or play Grand Hammer of the Underworld and siege down the last human capital or something like that. Yeah, and like I said, we talked about this a lot more on a previous podcast, so if you want to hear more about this game and Star Wars Rebellion, listen to that. Yeah, with that said, I, I think that that discussion we had on, on the, the previously released podcast, if anything, it it narrowed the gap between Rebellion and this game. I would like to see both maybe in the 20s. Um, I think that's where I'd put them both. It is a great thematic experience. I'm not convinced that it holds up as a game in this range. It's it's a great game, and it's, it's a lot of fun, but 13 is pretty high. I would like to say, when we talked about Rebellion, I vowed on the podcast to crush Marcus the Imperials. I have since fulfilled that promise and wiped the floor with him, so much so that he has rethought all his thoughts on, uh, all his opinions on the balance of this game. So we'll have to see. Just a little bit. We got to test it a couple more times. We'll have to see where it goes from here on. But it is at least possible for the Imperials to play well and win. Yes. Anyway, moving on to number 12, a brilliant Euro game also thematic in its own way, and that is Suburbia. Wow, okay. That's high. This one is great. It's, it's good. Just- I, I was not expecting it this high on the list. Oh, really? I, I love Suburbia since the first time I played it. Like, I just adored it. Yeah. It's, it, as the name implies, each player is building a suburb, and 
basically it's built out of these hexagons of maybe like a community park or a residential development or a landfill you know basic suburban life things and when it's your turn you have this market of different hexagons and the first couple are just the cost listed on the hex and the ones further back uh, have additional market additional costs associated with them and you buy one you slide the rest down and then you fill up the market again and when you buy them you the, the most fun part of the game is that when you place a hexagon on your suburb it will trigger one or two or three or four or five different reactions so maybe it will give you a single income but it also gives you an income for every other blue hex next to it or maybe it'll give you a person for every airport in the entire game so you have to pay attention to everyone else's boards and that very simple framework of just buying a hexagon placing it in your play area and then triggering all of these rewards or detriments in some areas it's just such a simple and just purely fun game yeah i compare this one and power grab a lot i like them both equally i think um, suburbia is probably a little bit lighter, a little bit more easy to get into, and it's all about community planning. And I, re I really enjoy it because you can be planning your community and it mimics zoning in real life, uh, which is both fun and interesting. And, and annoying at sometimes, <laughs> very very annoying. Yeah, because landfills are very lucrative, but you cannot put any houses next to them, or you get bad things happen. But who right. wants to live next to a landfill? Nobody. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I think one of the really interesting points in this game is the way that they handle. You have two sources of income. Well, I guess income in in the sense you have um, your reputation, which draws people to the city. And you have your your just financial income, and which gives you money. And as you as you gain more people into your city, both of these go down throughout the course of the game. So it's it's important to sort of an overhead thing. We got to talk about the market and the way the the, the tiles are oh, selected. Yeah. You know, one thing in this game is you can see everyone's suburbs, and there's also interaction between suburbs. Like if if Mark has an airport and I put an airport in, we both benefit. And in that way, it's incredibly thematic. Every tile makes sense. When you put in an airport, everyone with an airport benefits. When you put in, you know, a, a restaurant. Um, it diminishes the value of all the other restaurants. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. But this market basically is a sliding thing where uh, a new tile will come out. But there's a surcharge that's pretty hefty. But as people select tiles, everything slides down to where that, that surcharge goes down and down and down. So if it's a great tile, I might see that someone two turns ahead of me will benefit immensely from that. So I might have to pay that surcharge to take that tile off the market. And that's interesting, but... In that way, it does become very interactive because I have to know the other people's suburbs. The other hilarious part of this game is that when you take a tile off the market, you can either place it in your suburb and get whatever benefits, or you can flip it over and turn it into a lake. 
So you could turn, you could bulldoze the law office and make it a lake, <laughs> or you could bulldoze yeah. the housing projects and make them a lake in your town. And whenever you place a lake, it's a nice, attractive thing, and you get money for every tile surrounding it. A oh, lakes are the best. Yes, I I remember the last game we played, we ended up laking and destroying like every single school that was ever, <laughs> that was ever right. in the market. That's right. <laughs> tell you about our society <laughs> we're like, like well lakes. there's another high school let's make it into a lake the the ending of this game is a lot of fun even if you lose you get to the end of the game when the, you run out of tiles and then there's a number of public and private goals you're competing on for bonus population at the end but then you get to look down in your suburb and see this ridiculous thing you've created of you're like this is how is this even it's like why did i put that next to that and <laughs> what, what what is what even is this that i've created yeah but it mimics the real world communities are not perfectly planned Sometimes yeah exactly you do have a suburb next to a dump and what more can we say it's a great game Oh, for the top ten list, I had this at number nine, so I missed out just barely on that. Yeah, you gotta you gotta put an X there. Oh yeah, you, I need a pen. One. All right, moving on to the last entry on this list, number eleven, we have a game that I know Ben hates for no apparent reason because it's an amazing game. This is false, and that is Seven Wonders. Oh, I had that in your top ten. Barely missed it. Barely, barely missed it. Getting, like, numbers 12 through 8, I'd say, was... 12 through 8 could be almost in any order, because it's a bunch of really solid games. Seven Wonders is a drafting game. It's a fairly simple one, too, where you're going... It's, it has a, this kind of civilization theme, but it's the basic drafting idea of you take... You have a hand of cards, you take one of them, and then you pass it along. But it was one of the first modern board games I played, and I became addicted. I think you you might have been there, Amber, when we first played it at the Sempion's house, right? Yeah, and I agree. I was also addicted to it at first. From there, it has waxed and waned. Um, sometimes I hate it, and sometimes I love it. Even to this day, sometimes on any given day, I will hate it or love it. I will want to play it or not want to play it. Yeah, but for me, I want to. I would play it at any time. It's quick. It takes like 45 minutes, regardless of how many p players you have, because everyone is playing simultaneously. And it's just a fun puzzle where you're trying to build up your resource uh, income engine in the first age, and the, the whole game split into, th into three ages. And then you try to combo certain things you have cards that just give you points you have science cards which are very good if you get a lot of them but not very good if you don't have very many uh, there are different ways to get money and trade with your partners or interact with the people next to you there's a whole military mechanism where you're kind of passive aggressively almost like an arms race building up and trying to beat your neighbors and military strength it has all those little aspects of civilization but mostly to me it's just a very it's just a very fun drafting puzzle. And I've talked before in the Sushi Go entry about how drafting, I think, is just an inherently fun thing. And this game does it beautifully. And I I don't think I'll ever get tired of it. Well, it, well, the, the drafting mechanic, I think, is naturally good for players of any level. A and the decisions you're making are never more complicated than choose one of the cards in your hand yeah and so 
even if you don't know the game through and through, you can do that. You can see how military works. You can see how science works. You can see that, I forget what the blue cards are ca- called, they have a point value. A- and the interesting part of the game is is more when you you know all these things well and you're trying to beat out your opponents on the margins. Well, yeah, I think, and I think it's interesting at both levels. Right, right. It's interesting when you first start out and you're you're trying out different things because the game is designed as such that even if you're choosing almost randomly, you're going to get a decent amount of points um, and you're still going to accomplish things. But then once you start to understand the interactions between the cards, the game gets even better. Yeah. The the one hard or the I would say the hardest part of this game for new players is just learning all the symbols, especially if you add the expansions, particularly um, cities. I believe yeah has a lot more symbols that can be hard to understand, and so even now we still have the reference sheets out whenever we play the game. Um, I love this probably second only to Mark, and I would play it almost any time. But that's the the biggest uh, barrier to entry, I would say. Yeah, it's a bit of a barrier to entry. Um, but the, the reference guides they provide are very good, and all the symbols make sense. There's just a lot of them. So once you once you kind of get a very basic understanding, you can you can figure them out very easily. I would say I have a lot more fun playing this game with either all experienced players that I've played with before, or with all beginners. Uh, and and the game changes drastically depending on which group you're playing. That's actually a criticism that I wanted to bring up, is that if you have a mixed group, then the, the, the people who really know the game can take advantage of the fact that cards aren't being... This is especially true in science. Like, when the, when the new players have the opportunity yeah. to pick science cards, maybe they don't, and that that benefits the more experienced players extremely well. Yeah. Cards that aren't obvious to everyone that that will benefit one player or another are going to slip through and the more experienced players are going to get an unfair benefit from that. And that kind of throws off the whole balance of the game, I think. So that's where I think it's... I agree with you. It's better with people of the same level. I would almost entirely disagree with that. I've played it with all kinds of groups, mixed gamers and non-gamers, and it's always been a hit. Like it, it's time. always fun. It's always fun, but it's a, well, it's a worse game. To I say mean, that the better player is going to win a game isn't a criticism. Yes, but but I've won as the better player, not based on a good strategy, but based on a kind of cheap just doing something that I know that the majority of people aren't going to catch. Yeah, and you and I have played and, in the same groups, Mark. And, it's and a nitpicky criticism. Uh for for an excellent game look i enjoyed winning with 80 points of science but i don't look back on that as a good gaming experience well the the thing with seven wonders yeah that'll happen once and then it'll never happen again with any particular player i think with drafting games in general it helps if people are roughly the same level because then they have a a similar sense of what's competitive and you, they won't let one person have all of one strategy of cards. But I don't think that's unique to drafting at all. Any well-designed game, that's going to happen, I think. I would I would say that it's more apparent in drafting games because knowledge of what you can do is a lot more limited. 
in, in, in drafting games, unless it's a really light drafting game like Sushi Go. Th- this is part of the reason I don't like Seven Wonders as much, is that I, I haven't played it nearly as much as you, you guys have. And whenever I play it, I feel like I'm always at a huge disadvantage because I don't know what the cards do. It doesn't really have the charm of a of a light drafting game for me, but it doesn't have the depth of a serious Civ building game either. Those those things combined with my general lack of experience of, with the game, playing it with very experienced players, makes the game a lot more unattractive to me. Well, you guys are all wrong, and Seven Wonders is the eleventh best game of all time that I've played. I've been nitpicky. This is, I think, this is probably about the right spot. It, Good. It's a great game. Agree I'd, with I, me. It'd be a little lower on my list, but I, I would say in the thirties. Like it's a good game, but it's an amazing game. We need to play more, and we just need to either drag Ben into it or sneak it around him. <laughs> I would certainly be down for playing this game more often. I remember we were playing the base game online for a while over Christmas one year, and must have played easily a dozen games in a long weekend or something. Oh, it was it was so fun. Although I wish the expansions were in that online implementation, but they weren't. And that's our list for today. Tune in in two weeks to catch the top ten greatest games of all time that I've played. That last condition is important. (laughs) (laughs) And tune in next week for a regular Thoughtful Gamer podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please check out the website at thethoughtfulgamer.com. Please rate and review this podcast so we can get more visibility and hit me up on facebook or twitter i love hearing from people it's always really fun especially as a new uh website uh where i'm just kind of starting out it's great to hear from people who enjoy the content so please subscribe and we will talk to you again next week goodbye thanks for listening thanks guys Don't you mean talk at them? Mark, I'm More. so sorry for bumping the mic. I did you not gestured right on top of it. I, uh, it's fine. I, I, I go all over the place <laughs> when I'm talking. Oh, man. Yeah.